Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, begins, All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Could this line from the author of War and Peace also apply to war? That is the topic of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to episode 42 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, a retired cavalry colonel who remembers what it was like to look across the fences, minefields, and well-groomed kill zones that was the physical manifestation of the Iron Curtain, a wall designed to keep people from escaping the workers' socialist paradise. If we take a successful war as the equivalent of Tolstoy's happy family, then all successfully concluded wars must be alike in some way. Is this true? Well, of course I think it's true, otherwise I wouldn't be doing a podcast leading off with that quote. The real question is whether I can get you to agree with me on that. As is appropriate in any discussion, we have to begin with definitions, which leads us back to Clausewitz and to revisit his definition of war. He wrote, War is an act of force to compel our enemy to do our will. This is not a surprise to the listeners of these podcasts. I think I've included it in about a quarter of the episodes. Clausewitz describes what war is. There is no assurance that the outcome of the war will be successful, and it applies equally well whether you're the attacker or the defender. For example, if you're the defender, then your will may simply be to get the enemy to stop his attack. In Episode 7, I proposed expanding that definition to include other key elements from Clausewitz to say that, quote, War is an act of violence in concert with other elements of national power, creating conditions intolerable to our opponent, thereby compelling him to accept our terms for a lasting peace consistent with our national interests and values, unquote. In retrospect, other than the fact that it's overly long, this is not as good a definition as I originally believed. The problem is that it is not comprehensive. It is more of what war should be rather than what it is. You can eliminate everything after the word violence and it would still be war. It would just not have the elements that leads to winning that war. Nonetheless, it was a good foundation to build upon. In episode 24, Colonel Rob Waring and I did just that, incorporating elements from Sun Tzu and Thucydides to describe an overarching framework of war. We said, War is an act of violence applying military power in synergy with other elements of national power to achieve a political end state. To do this, it applies violence across several domains in unified action to achieve decisive effect, rendering our opponent incapable of effective resistance. If the all-happy families are alike analogy holds, and if Colonel Waring's and my framework is valid, then we should be able to see, using historic examples, that successful wars are alike and fulfilling that framework. I think I can make a very good case for that. Our framework of war begins by saying, war is an act of violence. Now, some people could say that this is self-evident and doesn't need to be discussed, but let's look at it anyway. War is more than just violence. It is organized violence, as implied by the rest of the definition. This violence is sometimes more organized and sometimes a bit less and sometimes more violent today and sometimes a bit less than in previous ages. The organized part is true, even when we are talking about Stone Age tribes, whether in the actual Stone Age or among primitive peoples today. There is both violence and some degree of organization by those in the fight, 
and the community they are fighting for. It is when that organization breaks down that marks the beginning of the end of the war. I should point out that our proposed framework and definition of war uses the term violence, whereas the Howard Perret translation of Clausewitz uses the word force. Clausewitz wrote in German, of course, and he used the word Gewalt. This could be translated as force, but it's better described as violence. By the way, this distinction often comes up in describing the state's monopoly of force, or violence, described by German political theorist Max Weber, who was also cited in previous podcasts. But are all wars really violent? What about battles among the indigenous tribes of North America who used coup rather than killing? What about the Cold War? Or wasn't that really a war? For the tribes of North America, counting coup was part of warfare. It generally took place within violent engagements and coup could be counted against recently dead bodies. The point was that the warrior got close enough for hand-to-hand combat and there was nothing peaceful about that encounter. Similarly, in Mesoamerica, there are stories of Aztec flower wars, where the objective was to capture opposing soldiers rather than kill them. Some scholars dispute the non-lethal aspects of this combat, but no one disputes that death awaited those captured as blood sacrifices, often involving cannibalization. Definitely violent. What about the Cold War? Was it a real war? I believe that it was. In fact, I believe the Cold War was the Third World War. That it did not involve the destruction of Europe and perhaps of civilization merely describes the method of fighting that war. Before Clausewitz and Jomini, the work of the late Roman military author Publius Flavius Vegetius Renatus was the basis for military education during the Middle Ages and later influenced great commanders including Frederick the Great and George Washington. In his work, De Re Militare, a loose translation would be about military stuff, Vegetius included this idea. For good generals do not attack in open battle where the danger is mutual, but do it always from a hidden position so as to kill or at least terrorize the enemy while their own men are unharmed as far as possible. I think this is as good a description of the Cold War as any. There was violence, but it was limited to the peripheries of the global contest, never risking war where the danger was mutual destruction. All the while, in that most dangerous arena, both sides followed Sun Tzu's advice, do not depend on the enemy not coming, depend rather on being ready for him. So, from ancient hunter-gatherers to the Cold War and to this day, war is, and always has been, an act of organized violence. Certainly, then, if you want a successful outcome of the war, one side must be violent. If not, then the violence will be done to you. Your enemy will be successful in imposing his will, and you will lose the war. The next part of the framework is applying military power in synergy with other elements of national power, and it applies violence across several domains in unified action. War, as Clausewitz noted, is never an isolated act. It's intended to achieve an outcome that could not be achieved without resort to violence. It is an instrument of policy, and a state would be foolish to abandon the other means of pursuing policy when rolling the iron dice. In every crisis of the moment, a common refrain among many presumed experts in international affairs is, there is no purely military solution. The curious thing is that all military officers know that there's no such thing as a purely military solution to any conflict. It's only the politicians that seem to think otherwise. 
But is this synergistic application of national power common in all successful wars? I think so. Thucydides makes a point of describing the diplomatic, informational, and economic aspects of the Peloponnesian War and how Athens and Sparta each used the domains of that time, that is, naval and land power, in concert to leverage strengths and exploit weaknesses. Frederick the Great achieved more through diplomacy than through his armies in the field, but that diplomacy would not have been successful without the ruthless efficiency of his armies. Prussia was a land power, but its land operations were coordinated with British naval operations to draw French military power away from Central Europe. Napoleon's armies were the terror of Europe, but he never stopped diplomatic efforts even as his armies marched relentlessly forward. Britain, meanwhile, fought successfully for naval superiority to move and supply its own and allied forces. Even more importantly, Britain used that sea power to maintain its economic freedom and to choke France's economy. Although diplomacy and information operations were often indistinguishable at that time, Britain and France both engaged in extensive propaganda to maintain morale at home and shape perceptions in other countries. The orchestration of diplomatic, economic, and information power with military operations was the hallmark of Union strategy in the Civil War. The issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation is only the best-known example. Stopping Lee's military advance at Antietam enabled Lincoln to release that proclamation. This proclamation served several strategic purposes. It clearly stated the objective of the Union cause. It sought to convince European powers that it was immoral to support the Confederacy. In so doing, it sought to cut off economic support from those countries to the South. Finally, in freeing slaves wherever they were found in rebellious states, it also dislocated the labor needed to maintain the economic production in those slaveholding states. Unified action by naval and land forces was essential to success. Strategic land and naval operations worked together to cut the Confederacy in half, which divided economically codependent areas of the South. Maritime operations supplied and moved land forces, increasing the operational mobility of Union forces and giving them the ability to strike deep within Confederate territory. Perhaps more importantly, Union sea power blockaded Confederate trade and access to foreign resources. Britain's use of all elements of national power in both world wars was critical in times when their military capacity was incapable of stopping German military might. The evacuation of Dunkirk was a masterpiece of unified action across all domains. Even the flower wars of the Aztecs, which I previously mentioned, were examples of blending all elements of national power. There was, of course, the combat on the field. However, there were the diplomatic aspects of negotiating the time, place, and sizes of the combatant armies. There were informational aspects as the Aztecs sought to use these battles as a way to influence other cities and societies by demonstrating Aztec military superiority. The whole purpose, however, may have been economic as the sacrifices were intended to placate the gods, restore the rain, and bring a good harvest. Nowhere was the integration of all elements of national power more evident than during the Cold War. It was used by both sides, the only issue being which side orchestrated all elements of it more effectively. Military campaigns of the Cold War, such as the wars in Southeast Asia, could result in apparent military victory by communist forces and still result in the strategic collapse of the Soviet Union. 
The economic, diplomatic, and information dominance by the West could not be overcome by occasional Soviet tactical military achievements in Asia and Africa. This unified action is intended, as the framework says, to achieve decisive effect, rendering our opponent incapable of effective resistance. The result, as Clausewitz describes, should be, quote, to put him in a situation that is even more unpleasant than the sacrifice you call on him to make, unquote. This is commonly thought of as destroying the enemy's armed forces. Without the military means to resist, the enemy cannot protect his population, territory, or means of production from complete destruction or despoilment by your armed forces or by your camp followers. But complete destruction of the enemy's armed forces has never been the only way to do that. Disarming the enemy depends upon destroying both his means and his will to resist. War, as has been said by key military theorists from Thucydides and Sun Tzu to the present day, is fundamentally a clash of wills. The key is to use all elements of national power in a way that creates conditions that the enemy, whether his government or his population, considers intolerable. This is essential, although situationally dependent. If you demand that an enemy's population gives up its way of life, its culture, sizable amounts of their population, and so on, then the limit to what that people may find intolerable may be very high. It might not stop short of their destruction as a state or even as a people. This, then, will require greater effort on your part and cost to your own force. We might have seen this if a land invasion of the Japanese home islands came to pass at the end of the Second World War. Instead, we came to a compromise. If, on the other hand, what you ask is of minimal value to him, then the enemy's pain threshold will be much lower and it will be easier and cost less to create the intolerable condition that will encourage him to give in to your demands. An example here would be the combined efforts of Moscow and Hanoi during the Vietnam War. The American people came to be convinced that the protection of a faraway country was of less value than the lives of our sons and some daughters and so displaced our national center of gravity, the will of the American people. The catch to knowing what conditions are intolerable is that you must accurately assess the relative value of the sacrifice you are demanding. This applies to both the enemy and to your own people. The enemy may place great cultural or reputational value on something you determine to be of minimal economic or political value. Another catch is that you may expend more resources than you initially planned for to achieve a low-value object. As a result, rather than concluding the war, you may be tempted to increase your demands to match your expenditure. Since the sacrifice you are asking the enemy to make increases, so too will his resistance, physical and moral, to giving in to your new demands. This is what happened in the First World War, keeping it from ending in 1915 and ultimately creating the conditions that led to World War II. This need to create intolerable conditions is why economic sanctions alone rarely succeed as a strategy. It is hard to create those intolerable conditions through trade barriers, especially when other governments refuse to go along. I think that the most important element of the framework are the words that describe why you apply that violence, that is, to achieve a political end state. These words build on that idea of knowing what it is that you are asking the enemy to sacrifice. These include two distinct ideas. One is that all actions must be oriented to achieving a clear, definable, and achievable condition. You must know and clearly articulate what you want to achieve by going to war. 
Abraham Lincoln did just that in the Emancipation Proclamation and subsequent addresses. The second is the idea of the primacy of policy. War is an instrument of policy, and the political goals must direct military efforts. I addressed this point in many previous episodes, so I won't take up your time repeating it again. Not in this episode, anyway. I will, however, cite a more modern historical example. Operation Desert Storm. The political and military objectives were clearly stated and understood by military planners and the diplomats. Push Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. Destroy the Republican guards, which were determined to be Saddam Hussein's center of gravity. But leave Iraq with at least 11 intact divisions so that Iraq could defend itself from potential attack by Iran. That would leave us with the breathing room to leave all but a small residual force in Kuwait to help that country rebuild its capacity to defend itself. There are two differences between the definition I proposed in Episode 7 and the framework in Episode 25. The first is the requirement for a lasting peace. It should, however, be considered part of the desired political end state. The goal of any war, or at least any just war, is to fix something that is seriously wrong and to establish conditions for a more just and sustainable peace. Any so-called purely military victory, one that does not address the underlying causes of the war, cannot be considered a real victory as it will not last. The defeated opponent may only give in to your demands until such time as he can resume the war on more favorable terms. This can even be true when the enemy is completely defeated. Unless the conditions leading to the war change, the defeated foe may be consumed with looking for the opportunity for revenge. This animosity is likely to continue long after the victorious side stops taking measures to secure their victory. In this way, Napoleon's victories in Europe were illusory, as the royal houses of Europe and even the common people looked for the opportunity to throw off French domination. Similarly, the surrender of Germany in 1918 did not create conditions for a sustainable peace and led to an unhappy family of Europe. The second difference is the statement in the earlier definition that the means and methods of victory must be consistent with national interests and values. It might also be considered part of the political end state, but it needs to be called out. It cannot be overemphasized. For, as it is written, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I think that all successful wars are alike in these ways. The violence operates in concert across domains with all other elements of national power. It is directed towards the achievement of a clearly understood objective at a cost that does not exceed what your perceived value of that objective to be, and higher than what your opponent is willing to pay to resist your demands. This transaction does not incur lasting enmity, and you do not sell your national soul to achieve it. There are many ways to go about this but successful wars include all these elements. So then, have I gotten you to agree with me that all successful wars are alike? If you disagree, if you think that there have been successful wars that don't share these elements or that I'm missing some, let me know. If you agree with me that all successful wars are alike, the corollary, according to the Tolstoy analogy, is that each unsuccessful war, each war unhappily ended, was unhappy in its own way. That will be the subject for the next episode. Please come back and join me, Chris Mayer, for looking at ways to lose a war on the ancient art of modern warfare.